Welcome to The Lisa Show. As humans, we are social creatures. We still have to communicate and collaborate with our families, our friends, our co-workers. But working together with others can sometimes be easier said than done, especially when they disagree with us. In fact, when someone shares an opposing view, it's easy to get defensive rather than listen to what they have to say. Look no further than social media any single day of its existence. But defensiveness is one of the biggest roadblocks to successful collaboration, according to our next guest, Jim Tam. Jim is the author of Radical Collaboration. He spent 25 years helping people settle arguments, and we thought he would be the perfect person to talk about how to overcome our defensiveness. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Richie. Thank you very much for having me. Defensiveness is a roadblock. No, it's not. Let's talk about it. <laughs> it certainly is. And uh, when we get defensive, we tend to spend way too much time and energy and resources defending ourselves and not enough time on problem solving. You know, when I was a, a judge dealing with employment disputes, I almost never had to deal with pure legal issues. People were almost always before me because somebody would start feeling vulnerable and then they would get defensive. And when we get defensive, our thinking becomes rigid and our IQ drops about 20 points and we simply become stupid. And not only are we bad at problem solving then, but we tend to invite everybody else in the room to get defensive. And then what you end up with is a whole room filled with people who can't solve a problem. Hmm. Now, now you mentioned something, and I just want to make sure that I understood correctly. It lowers our IQ? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, IQ, EQ, EQ they both drop. Hmm. Our, our uh, social awareness drops uh, because what we're focusing on is fears inside of us rather than what's going on in the conversation or the problem that needs to be resol- resolved. But, Jim, being defensive is my go-to. I think it's a lot of people's go-to. We quickly, we, we go to this familiar place, we dig those heels in, and then we, we ride it out and see what happens. Why is that, and how can we make that not our immediate response? Well, it is, uh, getting defensive is a human condition. You know, it goes with the territory. So uh, we don't expect that we're going to be able to eliminate everybody's defensiveness. But what we're trying to do is make people a little more aware of what defensiveness is about and when they get defensive so they can spot it at an earlier point in the process before they do damage. See, when we get defensive, we are not defending ourselves from attack by other people. What, and that's what most of us think is going on when we get defensive. Mm-hmm. But what's really going on is we are defending ourselves from fears inside of us that we don't want to feel. And so we behave in a way that lets us not be aware of those fears. Three fears that come up all the time uh, and push us into defensiveness are fears about our own significance Mm -hmm. and our competence Mm -hmm. and our likability. And so when those get challenged, we start behaving in ways that we don't have to feel those. Let let me give you an example here. Say uh, I have some fears about my readiness to do this podcast this morning. You Mm -hmm. know, maybe I've been flying all night and I'm jet lagged and and I'm forgetting things and taking things out of order. It's just not going well. Now, that can cause me a lot of discomfort because I really, truly do not like feeling incompetent. Mm -hmm. So maybe one way that I could deal with that, that distress that I'm feeling that could lower the distress is I might start blaming you instead of letting myself feel I'm not doing a very good job. You know, I might be saying, well, you're not asking the right questions. You didn't give me enough time to prepare. You know, you should have given me the questions ahead of time. Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to do this? Mm -hmm. So what I'm really doing is I'm behaving in a way that lets me not have to deal with that fear inside of me that I'm doing a bad job. (sighs) So if that's what defensiveness is about, then what we can try to do is help people become more aware of when they're getting defensive because all of this is very unconscious stuff. So most of us are not aware that we're getting defensive until we're already doing damage in the conversation or the relationship uh, and we're screwing things up. So let me ask you this, though, because that's a delicate balance. And let me walk you through this conversation. You and I are talking and you're saying, oh, you know, you're not asking me the right questions. And, you know, we're not arriving at the thing right to further your narrative of your story. And if I say something like, hey, Jim, don't get so defensive. 
I that I have I have I have quickly made that conversation and and taken whatever those embers of a fire were and and poured an entire tank of gasoline onto it. So I think some of these things are certainly easier said than done. You are absolutely right. And I probably the most common question that I'm asked is someone saying something like, you know, I can stay non-defensive, but I'm surrounded by people who are defensive. And so, uh, you know, how do I deal with them? And I, the advice I always give to them first is, well, our instinct is to point out to that other person that they're getting defensive. Your job number one is not to do that. <laughs> Don't point out to the other person that they're getting defensive. What, what can be helpful in those situations is for you to stay non-defensive. Get curious rather than furious. Don't let yourself get triggered. Mm. So if you can stay more centered, you're always more able to deal with somebody who's getting defensive. And a lot of times people think, well, if somebody's coming at me really hard and, and they're being really angry, I need to get tough and I need to get angry too. Yeah, stand that your ground. The, yeah, that's right. And that is not the most effective thing that you can do. What's most effective is for you to get curious. Try and figure out what's going on with that. Put more energy into listening, trying to understand what the other person might be fearful about. Then you focus on trying to understand everyone's underlying interest when you're trying to deal with the differences that need to be resolved. So let go of that pointing out to the other person that they're defensive. That's just not effective at all. We're talking with Jim Tam about how to stop being defensive. Uh, a great conversation already. I've, I've learned a lot from, from what you've said. One of the, uh, I am a saying guy, and you, and you dropped something that I think I'm going to keep with me, uh, the get curious, not furious. Yeah. Is that, is, am I saying curious, it? Not, yep. Yep, get curious, not furious. I'm wondering if maybe, given the example that we have sort of talked about, where you might be defensive in 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 this interview because you know y y you have some fears that are underlying it, give me an mm -hmm. idea of what it might sound like if if uh, we switch roles and you be more curious to me instead of getting furious. Does that make sense? Let's model what this might sound like. Sure. Well, in, instead of. Uh, instead of blaming you for that, you know, you're not doing a very good job. It might be, well, you know, what's, what's up with you? What's, what are you feeling right now? Mm. How, uh, what's going on in your mind? Help me understand what, uh, why you said that. Help me better understand, because I really want to hear what you have to say. So uh, can you walk me through that again? Hmm. You know, I didn't quite get that, and I, I, it doesn't make as much sense to me right now as I'm sure you mean that. So I really want to understand that. Help, help me understand that. Those kinds of questions. It, Making sure that the other person knows that you really do want to hear what they have to say and that it's safe enough for them to say what's going on in their mind. There's a key word that you, um, that you said in that is that we want to make sure that we're really um, – curious, really wanting to know what the other individual thinks. Anyone that hasn't been sincere in this, you know, when we talk yeah. about, oh, you know, make sure and ask questions to further understand, and people know that they're supposed to ask questions, but really don't care what you have to say, that can be another landmine for these types of conversations. That's right. That's like people trying to fake sincerity. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, you think you can do it, and it just doesn't work that way, you know. What, uh, what you really need to do is start tracking what your behavior is like when you are getting defensive so you can spot your own defensiveness at an earlier point in the process. Mm. Now, most of us, uh, since these, these fears are unconscious fears, so what can be helpful for most of us is to start paying attention to our outward behaviors because these outward behaviors are easier to spot at an earlier point in the process. So we encourage people to know what their signs of defensiveness are. And uh, there are things like uh, maybe you have high charge of energy in your body or you have a sudden drop in IQ and you just can't function well. Or maybe you are, you're always wanting the last word or you're flooding with information to prove a point or playing poor me or, or all of a sudden you get very quiet. You're withdrawing into a deadly silence or you blame or shame other people. And so if you start paying attention to what those behaviors are and then you can be on the lookout for those behaviors Anytime you see that behavior, the alarm bells can go off, you know, ding, ding, ding. Hey, mm -hmm. Richie, pay, pay attention to this, you know. Yeah. You're doing that thing again. Then you can take some action. But you have to spot it first. If you don't spot that you're getting defensive, you'll just remain blissfully ignorant and ineffective in the, in the conversation. 
So you need to spot it. Pay attention to what those signs of defensiveness are. We have uh, in the Radical Collaboration book that you mentioned, we have a list of 50 different signs. Uh, but you don't, it doesn't have to work off you know, some magic list. It's you just pay attention to what your behavior is when you're getting defensive and then start looking for that behavior. That, that foresight and that self-awareness is so invaluable. I'm a, I am, let, let's get vulnerable for a second, Jim. I am a pretty <laughs> even-tempered person. But uh-huh. occasionally, when I feel uh, like I have been wronged or mm-hmm. misrepresented or, yeah. you know, get that accused, like I would say, and hopefully people that I work with, people that listen to the show even, would know 99.5% of the time, man, he is one cool cucumber in handling this stuff. But that 0.5, I, I, <laughs> I bring in truckloads of firewood and I burn the building down without even thinking about it. And then moments later, as I'm standing and watching the burning ashes of whatever that thing is that I have just self-destructed on, I go, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I should have stopped before I got there. See, that's a great example, because now if you know that, then any time you find yourself becoming self-righteous about something, Mm. I was like, whoa, this other person is just a bad person and terrible, and I'm right, and they're wrong, and, and you're offended by it. Uh, then that's when the alarm bell should go off for you. Uh-oh, I'm doing that again. Yeah. And most of us aren't able to do that in the moment without some practice. So w- the advice to you would be start practicing. What, what's it look like the, as soon as you start having that feeling? What's the feeling in your body that you get? What are the, wor- the magic words that you start using? Mm. What are the, what's the self-talk that you have? Uh, going on in your brain right there. And that can help you uh, spot that you're getting defensive at an earlier point. Then you can take some action. But if you don't spot it, you won't ever take any action. 100%. Speaking speaking from years of experience of not having that foresight to recognize what those conditions <laughs> might be, and, and not constantly, but regularly finding myself in that scenario, I can tell you that forethought yeah. Yeah. is... is yeah is worth it. Is that one of the things that we can uh, read and understand about in Radical Collaboration? Absolutely. Absolutely. We talk about, you know, what, what defensiveness is about, and then we give you some tools, some basic tools for spotting your defensiveness at an earlier point in the process, and then some basic tools, which I can go over in just a second, for what do you do when you do get defensive? You know, Let, what, what steps can you take? Let's lean into those. We got a couple minutes left. What are those okay. steps? Well, number one, you need to notice it and acknowledge to yourself that you're getting defensive. You know, if you don't notice it, you, it's like, Jim, you get, pay attention. You're, you're defensive here, all right? Mm-hmm. Or Richie, you know, you, you notice that you're being defensive. You would be saying this to yourself, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two is try to slow down your physiology. And there's a couple different ways that you can do that. One is by uh, focusing outward. In other words, when we start to get defensive, oftentimes we get tunnel vision. And part of our our brain, our prefrontal cortex, shuts down a little bit. And so it's like we're not seeing the big picture. So if you can do something like uh, take a few deep breaths just to slow down your physiology, try to notice uh, how many colors you see in the room. Notice what sounds you see in the room. And that's a way of expanding your brain once again, of opening up that part of your brain that's been shut down. So you acknowledge it, then you focus outward to try to slow down. Then you focus inward. Try to see what the fear is that's being triggered there. Now, that's that's hard work to do in the beginning. So sometimes we say, if you can't do that right in the moment, come back to that later on. Right? Mm-hmm. Number number four, pay attention to your self talk. If you if you notice that you're going into a meeting and you're and you're having this you know little dialogue in your own mind about oh I don't know what I'm doing they're going to crush me I'm going to lose my job I'm going to starve to death that kind of stuff, try to turn that negative self talk into something a little more positive. You don't have to try to convince yourself that you're Superman and you can fly, but just try to make it less stressful, less toxic for you. You know maybe like yeah this is a difficult situation, but uh, it's only a 45-minute meeting. I've done it before. I can do it again. Mm. And mm. then the, the next, and, and I think one of the more important things, is figure out ahead of time what a good action step for you would be. So 
for example, if your sign of defensiveness is flooding with information to prove a point, then maybe your action step will be just to be quiet for 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not going to help you if your sign is withdrawal into deadly silence. Then you need to speak up and ask a question, somehow stay engaged in the, in the conversation. If it's high charge of energy, maybe you take three deep breaths. If it's obsessive thinking, you know, maybe you write yourself a note and make an appointment to come back to that issue later on. Then you stick the note in the drawer. But you come up with an action step that will help moderate the damage of whatever your particular sign of defensiveness is. And then you implement that. Hmm. And then the, the final thing is, you know, appreciate the fact that you're dealing with a human condition. You, you notice it. You take some action. Uh, and then let it go and move on. It's never in your best interest to keep beating yourself up over time. Right? Just let it go and move on and do a better job next time. Now, if you take those steps over a regular basis, uh, you're going to become more aware of when you're getting defensive at this earlier point in the process, and you'll be more skilled at dealing with it. Uh, but it takes practice. You know, You need to pay attention to what those signs of defensiveness are, and then you need to practice your action steps. It could change our conversation and our communication. We've been visiting with Jim Tam. Now, before I let you go, Jim, I want to do two things. One, I want to remind people that the name of the book that we've been talking about that you've authored is called Radical Collaboration, and people can find that at RadicalCollaboration.com. That's number one. Uh, The second thing is... Several times during this uh, interview, you said I did not do a very good job. I just want to make sure that uh, we clear the air and you feel like I did. I'm just teasing, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) You did Uh, a great job. I am teasing you. Jim Tam, thank you so much for being with us. Coming up, more of The Lisa Show. This is The Lisa Show. I had this thought, uh, I think it was yesterday, looking around my house and I thought, you know what, if I had to move, it would be a several months process based on how much stuff I have accumulated at this point. And if you're like me, you're probably looking around your either your office space or your home and you're thinking, yeah, you know what, I have accumulated a lot of stuff Who knew I was such an accumulation artist? Well, here to help us to be able to downsize a little, to be able to get rid of those things in an artful way that we can be able to to really maybe minimize or certainly reduce the amount that we have is the Downsizing Diva herself. Her name's Karen Shin. She is the owner and founder of Downsizing Diva. She's going to discuss the benefits of downsizing and how to make the transition as efficiently and as painlessly, which is probably more speaking to me, as possible. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Richie. Great to chat with you today. So when we talk about downsizing, or what we're talking about, uh, like a physical, I live in a 4,000 square foot home and I am then going to live in a 2,000 square foot home, or is it downsizing in, in just the amount of stuff we have? When we use downsizing, it can be either. I mean, it can be most people will feel more motivated to start the process when they're moving. So that's usually the, the reason people say, oh, I'm moving to that smaller place. I cannot bring everything that I have currently in my larger home. Um, we've always laughed, though, and said a lot of people think that, you know, a four-bedroom house will fit into uh, a one-bedroom condo. Mm-hmm. And we're, there. we're here to tell you it doesn't. Um, so the downsizing process is really one of, and, and it's like the commercial. We always say to people, this is the opportunity to keep the treasures, the things that you want, you use, you need, and you like to look at, and let go of the rest. Yeah. It's a time to sort of say, I'm going to pick, if, I, if you're a collector, it's a time to say, I'm going to keep 12 of my favorite items, and I'm going to release the rest. Not get rid of, well, that's a term that is kind of negative, but sure. we're all about releasing the rest, and... and um, and it's a positive step. People, of course, you know, the connotation of downsizing, we often think of with jobs back years ago where everybody was downsized, and that was very negative. Mm-hmm. This is downsizing with a positive spin, and it's really more about right-sizing. I, I like the term right-sizing a, a lot better than downsizing because I am one that when I think of, of, um, of releasing of my items, I, I, it, it's emotionally very taxing on me to think to think about you know no longer having those things. 
Well, and, and the emotion, you've hit it. When we've, we've been doing this for almost 20 years. Wow. And uh, we find that the words, there are, there's a word people use when they call us every time, and there's usually a phrase. And the word is overwhelmed, mm-hmm. is the starting point for everyone. Um, and the phrase is, I don't know where to start. Yeah. And that really sums up the dilemma people are in when they think about the process. Now, we've just been going through uh, these challenging times, and uh, we've heard so many people saying, I'm living at home and I have nothing else to focus on. I'm starting to clear cupboards. I'm getting rid of stuff. I have bags and boxes of things ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I honestly think that as a result, when this is, when this changes our life forever, and there's no doubt it, it has, um, I think we, a lot of people will be more happier living with less. Um, people are finding that the things they need to get, they, they're, they're not the latest uh, item of clothing. They're not uh, the latest um, pair of shoes or, mm-hmm. or whatever. They're, they're things like, I really wish I could get a package. Of, well, flour is a big deal um, because people are baking more. So mm-hmm. we're, we're really re, re, redefining um, our wants and needs. And I think it's going to carry over to life as we will now know it. Um, but it is one of those challenges that uh, people are going through it and doing things themselves now and looking for continuing the process as, as we keep going. When I think of downsizing, I think the thing that comes to my mind uh, immediately is, you know, you got the parents who had the the big home because they had three, four, five kids, and, you know, they find themselves to be empty nesters, and maybe the the property is vast and the home itself uh, becomes too large to really care for. And so at, at that point in the life, um, the, the, the people decide, oh, I'm, we're going to downsize. We're going to find ourselves in a, in a smaller space. And 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 personally, you know, seeing my mom, who's sort of at that time of retirement now, she went from a very large, beautiful home where a lot of us kids had lived with, and, and now she's in a, a townhome. And I thought, you know, such a vast difference to go from a multi-thousand square foot home to about a thousand feet in a, a townhome. Surely she is going to miss it. Surely that, you know, she's going to wish that she had the yard and all the things. And she's like, I there has not been a single day that I've thought, man, I want to spend an entire day cleaning or four (laughs) weekends in the yard just to be able to keep it maintained. She said, you know, time, place, that time and place gone, season of of, uh, downsizing or right-sizing has really paid off for her. Well, and it's interesting because our clients, we are senior move managers. So that's the, the group of people that we primarily appeal our services to, although we help everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But as senior move managers, we find that it's this transition in later life where people say, you know what, I I, I might miss it, but I don't know. And they're nervous as anything starting the process. Mm -hmm. And we do presentations, and I often say to them, I want you to repeat after me, because if you get this little um, nugget of information, it will it will really help you move through the process. And I have them repeat, my family probably doesn't want my stuff. <laughs> now, that for many people is a ha-na-ha moment mm-hmm. and because they're often saying, oh, you know, my children will take the dining room suite, my kids will take this. And, and the, re- the kid is sitting, the kid, the adult child, mm-hmm. is sitting there going, oh, no, and they're, they're shaking their head behind their mom or their dad. And the reality is... Life has changed. Your comment about the living in the bigger houses, uh, we find now that the, the generation that's letting go of things now, so we'll call them seniors, mm-hmm. um, they are the parents of the boomers. Mm. And the boomers, although they said they were going to live life so differently than their parents, for the most part, followed them into larger houses and collecting stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the boomers' children are now saying... You know, we're looking at grandma's house, looking at mom and dad's place. I can't believe the amount of stuff that's there because they are looking at much smaller places. And it's a generality, of course, but they seem to desire collecting experiences over stuff. Yeah. This isn't everybody, but it's a generalization. And whereas they, they have all of the, they collect electronic stuff. 
you know, their computers are filled with files and sure. stuff and music and things. But it doesn't take up shelf space. They're also living in much smaller homes because they can't put in Grandma's dining room suite with the buffet, the sideboard, and the hutch. <laughs> it just doesn't fit. And uh, when we say to people, you know, like, your, your grandson might want your dining room table, but he's living in, you know, 400 square feet. He has a choice between your dining room table and a bed. I'm thinking he's going with the bed. Right, right. They, they laugh. They say, well, he could put a mattress on the table. <laughs> this is the logic we try to work with. But honestly, it, it's one of those things. And people say, well, I'm not moving. I've got the space to store it. Mm-hmm. And we always say, your stuff accumulates to fit the space you've got. Yep, yep. Oh, and, it, and if it doesn't, then you can go and rent a storage locker. And And we've had storage lockers where people have phoned and said, the bill for storage has now exceeded $100,000. Oh, my gosh. And we've got to do something about it. And it's my mom's stuff, and I don't even want it. Yeah. And you think, well, yes, this is logical. But we have the options to, to put things places, and, and storage lockers are great for the right purposes. Mm-hmm. But we have one that their slogan is, where your stuff wants to be. I have problems with that because my <laughs> stuff, if I'm keeping it, wants to be used or enjoyed. Yeah. Because I want to be locked yeah. up in a cupboard somewhere that I don't even access it. And, and for many people, possibly like your mom, when she moved, she took the things that she wants, uses, needs, and likes to look at. Mm-hmm. The rest, quite honestly, were probably things that they might guilt gifts. They were easy to let go of the guilt gifts. Sure. They might have been stored in the basement. And the number of people who are holding on to not only their good dishes, but their grandma's good dishes, and a favorite aunt's good dishes. We often in our presentations find people who have two, three, four, five, six sets of good dishes. Wow. They're not going to do anything with them, and nobody really is willing to pay for them. My good set of dishes, if you like, um, a place setting for 12, mm-hmm. brand name, really high end, My one of our buyers said to me, I'll give you $60 for them. Yeah. That was $5 a place setting. I hate to tell you what I paid for them. Mm-hmm. So what used to be considered something of value has really seen a decrease in the, in the value today because value is always driven by want. People want it. It becomes more valuable. But when there's nobody wanting it, you're sort of stuck with a lot of things. Now, silver, sterling silver, has a melt value. Sure. So whatever it is on the, on the market, that's what you can get. Worst case scenario. Um, gold, same thing. But good dishes? Yeah, yeah. Most, yeah. Of us, most of us are not holding on to silver and gold. Most of us are holding on to, like you say, dishes or a couch or a perfectly good box spring or, you know, yeah, perfectly, exactly. perfectly good whatever those things are. We're talking with Karen Shin about the art of downsizing. Uh, my, my dad and I, uh, he also at the retirement age... Uh, separated from um, from my mom so this is a different scenario but he and I will often have these these sort of maybe irreverent conversations and and you know we're having a heart to heart and I'll say something like dad you know the greatest gift that you can give me when you pass and you know it's sort of this sweet tender moment as I'll be like the gift of me not having to clean up after you when you're gone and and it it's funny but we have had within our family grandparents and great grandparents that when they have passed, they just never got rid of anything, and and it and it was very much like you say, overwhelming. Where do I even begin? What even is this stuff? What's valuable? What's not? And it and it just became too taxing. I think that that's a gift we can not only give ourselves as we live, but also if, if we find ourselves in those later years, that gift that we can give uh, those that would that would need to take care of us and our stuff after we're gone. Being that, where do where do we start? If we do feel overwhelmed, if we've got years and years in a multi-thousand square foot home, like where where's the where's the place we jump in? Well, one of the things we always say is the whole process, we call it downsizing, right sizing, we call it lighten up. Um, and we have created, oddly that you'd ask, but we created what we call the downsizing diva wheel. And it's, it's online, of course. Mm-hmm. So Where can people go, find it online? It's, on, it's under downsizing, oh, www.downsizingdivawheel.com. 
And on that wheel, you can click on it and spin it. And it has, I don't know, there's a number of uh, items to, l- to let go of. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a place to start because it is the biggest question. Where do I start? Well, you click the wheel and you might get something like medication. You might get batteries. You might get shoes. You might get ties or scarves. You click the wheel. Now, we know people don't click the wheel and go for the first thing and think, oh, I'll go and clear that out, and then I'll do it again. People click the wheel till they find something they want to let go of. <laughs> but that's okay, because no matter how you get to the next step, you're getting to the next step. So, of course, the best time to start downsizing is today. So click on the wheel, figure out, and get one you like. Because I have a friend who's, who doesn't wear makeup, and she clicked on makeup. Oh, she says, that was easy. I did yeah. that today. <laughs> and that was her finished. I said, that's not the point. Um, but on that wheel, at the bottom of it, there's a little note that says uh, uh, more information. Or we link people to something called where to get rid of your stuff. That's brilliant. And, and in this link, now, the link, and, and I know this is a, a certainly a more of a global audience than a local one here, mm-hmm. the link has got some information that's local to us. But what it does is gives you, it gives you an idea of where you can give safe passage to your items. And that's when you give them to someone who could use them, even though you're not. They're still, your items are still good. Your surplus items are still good. But... You don't need to, you don't want user need them. So you want to get them to someone else because everyone wants to be assured that their stuff is good stuff. It's like the George Carlin skit if you've ever watched that. It's uh-huh. hysterical. But you've got good stuff and this way you can share it with others. So at the bottom you click on that. Now the where to get rid of stuff might be local to to us, but as part of that, we, we then will start sending you some emails that help you get rid of paperwork, will help you get, uh, do things with photographs. So you get a number of emails from us with what we call diva tips, tricks, and techniques that will help you continue the process and support you while you're doing it. So uh, that's, that's a, a little extra um, thing that we've created because we know people I think it's- are... I think it's so fun, and this makes uh, what, like you say, would be a paralyzing or really emotionally taxing thing and turns it into a game. I went to DownsizingDivaWheel.com, and uh, I spun the wheel, and uh, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you get? I got socks. And and I I'm I am not kidding when I say I probably have 100-plus pairs of socks, and you know what I never wear, Karen? 100-plus pairs of socks. (laughs) Well, there is something you can do right after this show. You can go home and let go, release some of your socks. Yeah, and, and the thing is, and, and where I have really been able to emotionally uh, attach to it, because there, as weird as it sounds, there are emotional attachments that I have to a couple of these pairs of socks. I know it's ridiculous. I'm getting therapy. We can talk about that a different <laughs> time. But knowing that when I donate them somewhere, that they're not going to the landfill, that they're not you know, just being discarded, but that someone else is going to either be able to wear them or use them or that they'll serve a function more than what they did just in my drawer as I wasn't using them. As the older that I get, it really allows me that opportunity to let go, to right-size my life. And really, I just feel lighter as far as, uh, you know, my my imprint, my impact, my all those things. Yeah, um, lighten up. That's what we say. Lighten up. Karen Shin, the founder of The Downsizing Diva. You can uh, check out that wheel at DownsizingDivaWheel.com or you can find out how to get started downsizing by going to DownsizingDiva.com. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. This is The Lisa Show. Here on The Lisa Show especially, we talk a lot about humor, right? Okay. And and where to look for levity, levity. And I often wonder, you know, are there those situations where it's just like, just no, you you don't use it? Or is is there a delicate way that you can incorporate or infuse laughter? Yes, that. I prefer that. I know. See, I, I, I there, think we want that to be the situation. If Reader's Digest taught me nothing, right. it's that laughter is the best well, medicine. And people throw that phrase around all the time laughter's the best medicine what does that actually mean and how do you how do you introduce that to somebody who's going through a legitimately difficult situation um because i don't think anyone is saying like 
no, don't take morphine. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just watch a funny show, yeah. you know? You could take antibiotics, but have I got a joke for you instead? I No, that's not what people now, are saying. Now, all of this to say, we are talking right now about professional medical clowns. And I know people are going to hear and go, oh my gosh, what? I think is, people are like, is Richie looking for a, a career change? I actually did, in preparing for this interview, think oh, that you would be really, really good at this. Because you. you are a performer. You like to make people laugh. You care about people. And and I think other than the movie Patch Adams, mm-hmm. I you don't hear about medical clowns. Do you? No, I not mean, too much. I, it, no. This isn't something that you're that you we, I think, take for granted as it is an established thing. But really when you think about it and somebody going through a really difficult time, like why wouldn't this be a thing? I would agree with that. So around the world, these clowns are dedicating their careers to bringing humor and fun to hospital patients. So joining us today to share his past experience is Matthew Wilson, a former medical clown and Emmy Award winning performer who spent years at the bedsides of terminally ill children, giving them, their families and the hospital staff something to laugh about. Welcome, Matt. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, you two. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, we're so glad that you're here because I feel like we don't ever really hear a lot about really the health benefits of a medical clown and, and, and what that really entails. Uh, how did you, first of all, become a medical clown? Like, what is that process? Well, there's a medical clown college. Well, <laughs> no, that's what I assume, right? That's a great question. And honestly, Richie, based on what I've been hearing, I think you'd be a really excellent candidate. It's true. Um, he would. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the deal. So I'll tell you my story. There are a couple different ways to get here. But believe it or not, I was pre-med at Vassar College. I always wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. But I also always wanted to be a clown. Um, I, I, had, uh, I learned to juggle when I was in high school. And I, I was a unicyclist. And um, I got to Vassar. And I actually started a juggling group, which is still there, the Barefoot Monkeys. Very cool. But, but then I was majoring in biophysics. I, uh, I took the MCAT, applied to medical school. I applied to clown college. Uh, I was a New York State emergency medical technician. Oh, wow. And I would actually respond to emergencies on my unicycle because I could get there faster than the ambulance. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I'm serious. But for real? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was right around that time when I discovered about medical clowning as a field. The first professional medical clown program was started in uh, New York City. And so I decided rather than become a real doctor, I'd rather be a clown doctor. So I moved to New York and uh, wow. was hired to be a, a, a clown doctor. Yeah. So, so when you say hired to be a clown doctor, I think we may have to break that down a little bit because certainly oh, absolutely. Your, your love and passion for people and also for clowning, I, I'm starting to see this, but, but please elaborate a little more. Sure thing. So basically, um, so medical clowns, they, they change from country to country and city to city. Um, you know, they range from volunteer programs to pay professionals mm-hmm. to, to, to degree, degree programs. There's actually a degree program in Israel at the University of Haifa. Um, but when I started, the field was still a little smaller. And so uh, they hired professional performing artists with background in circus and theater and improv and music. And uh, we were trained to apply our skills in teams of two in um, the top research hospitals in New York City. Wow. So, okay, a medical clown. I think, yeah. I think, what does a typical day look like? Like, when do they call you in? What do they have you do? All of that. Oh, sure. So basically, um, our day would start, say, like 8.30. We would do clown rounds from, say, 9 to 3. Um, We would show up at the hospital, get changed in the locker room. Mm -hmm. And uh, something, I I love talking about it because, as you you mentioned, it's not something a lot of people have experienced. Right. Mm -hmm. And and, and so the image is, what does it look like? Because when I first heard about it, I actually thought it could be a terrible idea. Yeah. Right. Well, it just has the opportunity for so many awkward interactions right if people are not in the mood to laugh like you know knowing your audience first of all it's that's hard to read a room yeah when you hit the nail on the head there which i would say one of the key skills that medical clowns possess is that ability to read the room yeah because the interaction is it's predicated on consent Mm -hmm. 
you're actually asked, you ask permission before you enter anyone's space. We have, we have free reign over the hospital and the programs I worked in, you know, uh, we had gone through clearance process. We were trained in uh, medical uh, medical uh, hygiene, you know, procedures. Oh, sure. as far as, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we had our ID cards. Our, our dress was usually eccentric. So whereas often when people think of a clown, they think of a, a circus clown, right? With fairly large, bright makeup. Uh-huh. Our, our approach is more subtle, more eccentric, more like Patch Adams, the movie. I actually know Patch. Uh, he trained us wow. uh, once. Yeah. Wow. But um, so, yeah, so we're, we're in the hospital, right? We've changed and we start in the lobby and we're just kind of walking around. Um, I'm usually wearing Heelys, size 11. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. And you, honestly, it's just your, your sensors are on, right? Like you're really just kind of. Uh, just walking around and looking for opportunities to stay high. For me, it always uh, starts with eye contact because mm -hmm. you're building relationships, right? Yeah. Like you're literally just building these uh, playful, hopefully playful relationships. The expectation isn't necessarily to make anyone laugh, mm -hmm. right? Like it's literally about meeting people where they're at, getting a sense of, you know, hi, how's it going? Um, and then going from there, once we're actually on the floors and going from room to room, when you knock on the door, you say, hey, can I come in? And then the child, because it's usually a child patient, has an opportunity to say yes or no. Yeah. They often don't have any control over their circumstances. Right. And so the first, the very beginning of the interaction is predicated on a sense of empowerment for the wow. patient. And yeah. then from there, you're just kind of like, cool, where are we going from here? Mm. Uh, we we kind of queued this conversation up about laughter being the best medicine, and you've talked about how you know you're not there to be necessarily funny, um, yeah. but just to make that connection. How have you found those connections to actually make a difference in in how those patients are feeling? Yeah, oh, great question. Well, the cool thing is the body of uh, legitimate research mm -hmm. has grown since I've been in the hospitals, especially in the last ten fifteen years. So the cool thing is there are, there are some studies. That are looking at, um, I mean, you know, we know that there's a hormonal response to, to humor and laughter and a decreased stress response, but now we're also finding specific to medical clown interactions. There was one study that showed that, or indicated that interacting with a medical clown could increase fertility for really? women undergoing IVF. I did not uh, expect you to say that. <laughs> yeah, that's published. Yeah. Uh, there's another study that's actually looking at preoperative anxiety in both children and, uh, and their parents. Uh-huh which is where they noticed um, the anxiety levels were reduced similar to uh, using a sedative or a tranquilizer. Wow. Wow. And so I, yeah, no, it's so, so on the one hand, there's research that documents it. And then from my own personal experience, I mean, like you said, you're reading the room yeah. and you're literally a walking icebreaker and you're attempting to kind of, I mean, for the most part, lots of folks are just bored. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. When you're in a hospital, you've got a lot of time. Exactly. And so, like, for example, we, you know, I worked in um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is one of the top uh, cancer centers in the country. And so there that's different than working in an emergency room because right. you're, you're actually building relationships with the family and the staff and the patients. So wow. you're actually building a, almost a, a working relationship and you're learning tastes and you're learning needs. Right. And mm -hmm. so then this relationship over time is, I think, what really contributes um, to the, the, the healing relationship and communication between the parent and the patient and the healthcare provider. We're talking with Matthew Wilson, who is an Emmy award-winning performer and, and a former medical clown about the health benefits of medical clowning. Um, I, I feel that there is a certain insight and wisdom that you must have from bringing, you know, laughter, bringing joy to terminally ill children. What, what have you learned? Oh, wow. So much. I mean, I'd say the, the key thing for me is that um, joy and suffering coexist uh, or, or can coexist. And so it doesn't have again. Yeah. So it doesn't have sorry. to be just one or the other, which is, I think, where a lot of people sort of miss the mark. Right. Is I'm either happy or oh, I'm exactly. sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's way more complicated than that. Right. And so often there is an expectation. Oh, the medical clown is here. You're going to make someone laugh. Yeah. It's like, no, it's a little more nuanced. Yeah. Because you're, you're navigating complicated situations and you're not trying, you don't want to deny someone else's reality. Mm -mm. Right? And right. so you can't, you know, there's a kid, this is a life-threatening illness, and, you know, they may have just had a serious operation. Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe, um, maybe yesterday, uh, they didn't look like they were going to make it through the day. Uh, but yes, they still want to see you. 
and so you're just accepting the circumstances and um yeah without denying it right you're not trying to distract you're you're just being present right so I want to get into wow. uh, I want to get into some of the uh, tactics. Maybe you have oh, a yeah, you, you yeah. have you have a game called Elevator Music. I would love for you to explain a game to me uh, like oh, that. Absolutely. So the notion of game or play is actually a really great way. Thanks for bringing it up. It's a really great way to describe every interaction uh, because that's kind of my approach. Um, I take play very seriously, and I'm actually working on a book project uh, teaching adults how to play because, because we forget like, for sure well, yeah, yeah, we don't prioritize exactly. it yeah. no and so um it really has to do with starting that playful encounter starting with consent right and so elevator music is literally a game that plays with that so um i love elevator music and i like you know that bossa nova girl from ipanema <laughs> Well, it's an organ thing i love bum, exactly yeah it's uh, just... uh, uh, you know it uh-huh and so um, I'd be in the hospital with my partner, and we'd be waiting for the elevator. And, um, you know, you'd get in the elevator, and there's never any elevator music in there. But I usually would keep a small portable speaker in my pocket. Like you do. Um, and, <laughs> like you do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, this was before everyone had a portable speaker. Okay, so was, cool. I was, I was an early adopter. <laughs> yeah, o- OG of the, uh, the portable speaker. Exactly. So you get in the elevator, everyone's in there. Um, it's usually really awkward because no one really knows each other. No one's trying to, you don't want to look at each other. The elevator doors close. And as soon as the doors close, you hear the girl from Ipanema. <laughs> then we go up to, and everyone just kind of looks at each other because no one's actually expecting there to be elevator music because it's usually a silent elevator. Yeah. Then the doors open, the music stops. Some people get out, some people get on. And as soon as the doors close, I start the music again. So now the people who got on on the first floor are seeing the people who got on the second floor, seeing their look of surprise. And so now people are kind of starting to laugh a little bit. Um, and then the door opens again and uh, the music stops. And we just play that floor by floor by floor. That's awesome. And usually by the time you get to the top of the hospital, uh, it's a party. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah. People are you're giving per- people permission to like exactly. participate and make a connection. Yeah. You, exactly. wow. That's literally all you're doing. You're literally, in my opinion, that's such a great way to frame it. I'm walking around and I'm or rolling, and me and my <laughs> partner were looking for opportunities to relate and connect. Yeah. It could be as small as a nod and a smile, or it could be a full-on, you know, parade down the hallway. Right. You, you've mentioned on a couple of occasions hmm. as we've been speaking about your clown partner. What's the value in having another person there with you? Oh, sure. I think it's, it's super invaluable, and it's my 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 preferred way of working. Different programs do it slightly differently, mm-hmm. but the way that our program started, it worked with teams of two. On the one hand, you've got the classic comedy duo. You've got a team of two, and you're just playing off of each other. So that's a, just a solid way to create um, comedy and to play with relationships. And then specifically in the hospital, it's super important because you have someone there to check in with. Yeah. Um, and then to, to gauge, you know, the, the area and um and then also it creates an opportunity where if the patient in, isn't in a position where they can engage then they can watch a little bit more passively but still be involved because you and your partner are playing yeah there's a lot of value in that um yeah. how, how many hospitals have medical clowns in them is this a growing field yeah it's definitely a growing field and the last numbers i had were from um the international medical clown conference from about 2018. At that point, there are about 150 programs around the world. Really? Yeah. So you got them, you've got them in the United States. Uh, you've got them in Canada, South America, um, specifically Brazil, uh, Argentina, oh, wow. uh, Germany, France. France was huge. Um, yeah. And, and I, I imagine that the because you not only cheer up patients, but also the medical staff as well. And, and I imagine that you have more time to really establish like a relationship with them. What's that like? Sure. That's actually probably, my, in my opinion, one of the more important parts of the job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, initially, you, you often think that it's about the patient's experience, which it is. But it's also about the experience of the healthcare provider. It's about the experience of the parent. It's about the experience of the hospital administrators. So I like to think of it in terms of different circles of audience. Mm-hmm. You're literally there to impact everyone's work experience. And so with, hopefully with the healthcare providers, 
you know, you develop trust, you develop a relationship so that then they're actually sometimes can engage in the play with the patient mm. and the parent. Wow. And that just helps communication across mm-hmm. the board, you know? Mm-hmm. It- it, yeah, it's worth mentioning. Connected. It's worth mentioning at this point, though, that there are some people who suffer from calrophobia or a fear of clowns. You've certainly probably engaged in that in the hospital. Do you just kind of skip over those folks? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, and it always comes up. It's one of those things where whether or not they actually are, you know, have a pathology or they just say it because that is happens. You know, you respect someone's right. experience. Um, and it, believe it or not, it rarely actually happens. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's usually a, a, more about the conversation of people saying, "Hey, aren't some aren't people afraid of you?" Yeah, uh, that happens more than people actually being afraid. I mean, if you look at it this way, people are afraid of doctors, though. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true, though. Yeah. So all of your time um, performing, making people laugh under these really, really difficult. Um, kinds of situations is is there a memory or a moment that was particularly meaningful for you or that just kind of stands out as as you think about your time as a as a as a medical clown oh sure um i'll tell you one thing that was always kind of important to me when i started Mm -hmm. is you kind of you kind of discover yourself and your style in relationship with your work right in relationship with the patients in relationship with the um uh, the staff. And so I, I typically would allow my name to be discovered. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, I ended up, I really enjoyed playing with whoopee cushions. <laughs> I think whoopee cushions are very important. Um, I had multiple sizes of whoopee cushions because it goes above and beyond the relationship with flatulence. It's just, it's a beautiful sound. And <laughs> yeah, I agree. Listen, you, yeah. you're talking to the right people here. Uh-huh. Oh, I, I knew I found my people. Yeah. And so I had multiple, multiple on me and I'd use them for musical instruments. <laughs> and, um, I think, uh, a, a patient, a child, uh, very kindly began calling me Dr. Burpenfart. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, man, that's, that's what it is. And so that became my name, uh, Manolo Berfunfert. It's German. I'm not. It's... And there's an umlaut over the A. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because if, it, if, it, if there wasn't one, it wouldn't be German, but right, you're not. Right, right, but right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I just think what value it, it brings, like you were saying, that this kind of joy and pain, you know, can coexist. I think it's a beautiful thing what, what you've been able to do. Mm, thanks. Matthew A. Wilson is an Emmy award-winning performer and former medical clown. If you want to find more about him, uh, about what he's doing, that project that he's working on, you can find him online at MatthewAWilson.com. Have you downloaded the BYU Radio app yet? If not, it's free, available in whatever application store you use. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.